Ephesians chapter 4. This will be the first segment of several. If you're using a Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 977. We spent time on the first three verses for a couple weeks. We'll spend time on those first three verses today, and then uh, I think by next week we'll be able to move into verses 4, 5, and 6. starts off like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Last week, for the last 15 minutes or so, we spent some time talking about the significance of that word worthy. It is a fascinating word. I think I... I know I told you last week how many times it occurs in the New Testament. It seemed like it was in the 50s. And they're all very interesting. I want to build on that. Hopefully we'll finish this week with the word worthy and its significance. So let's take a closer look. This is from last week. This is going to be the short version of a lot of what we did last week. If you take that word worthy in Greek and translate it literally into, into English letters... It translates as axios. We get our English word an axiom or axiomatic from this particular Greek word. So it has the idea of something that is self-evident. It's a fundamental truth. It's an axiom. You can count on it. It's not, depending on the weather, this is true. It's uh, always true. So this idea of walking worthy, it's a fundamental, basic, indisputable, self-evident truth, what that needs to look like. That's what the word means. The second thing we learned about this particular word from last week is, is that it comes from a Greek root, which has the idea of worth associated with weight. And I'm not using this as an example because I think it's good. It's actually... the it's what the word is derived from. It's derived from this idea of a scale. It's, it's what the word means. You take a scale and something that is on the scale on this side, if you're going to bring balance to that scale, you've got to have a worthy equivalent. That's literally what the word means. That's the way it's used in the New Testament. So you've got something of substance on this side, which is balanced or brought into a certain equilibrium by something else on the other side. So, this word, worthy, it's a self-evident, fundamental truth. It also represents a necessarily balanced relationship between two entities or two realities. And the word necessary is required because it's not an optional balance, an optional relationship. It is a necessary Balance, a necessary relationship. So in Ephesians chapter 4, the question is, what is the worthy relationship between? What is being balanced when Paul turns the corner from the first three chapters of Ephesians into chapter 4 and he talks about something being balanced? What is being balanced? And the answer is in verse 1, the answer is our walk, a Christian's walk, is in balance with the calling to which you've been called. The balance is this. 
chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians described God's call to salvation by grace. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 say, now that we know what God has called us to, the only worthy way to respond is chapters 4, 5, and 6. There's a balance between the first three, what God has done, and the next three chapters, what we are required to do in response. That's the balance. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, that word uh, balanced relationship or this idea of equilibrium, we're uncomfortable using that word in, uh, in this sentence because in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's very clear I'm not worthy of God's grace. And so, to use a word here like we walk worthy of chapter 1, Worthy of chapter 2? Worthy of chapter 3? How could that possibly be? And Paul is not saying we ever arrive at a point in our walk that we have demonstrated we are worthy of God's grace. That's not the point. But it is a necessary response to grace. So instead, if you want to think the word connected in an instance like this, you would do well. There's a necessary connection between a Christian's walk and a Christian having been saved by by God's grace. But the actual definition of the word has this idea of a balance. So it is a biblical concept. Uh, Second question, what does a worthy walk look like? Our walk is to be in balance with what God has done in those first three chapters. What does it look like? Well... It's with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then it will continue to go through the rest of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. That's what a worthy walk looks like. That's what you've got to put on the scale in light of what God has done in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Next question. What happens if chapters 4 to 6 are not in balance with chapters 1 to 3? What happens if somebody says, I'm really not that interested in the doctrine side of Scripture. Just tell me what to do. I'm just going to start with chapter 4. I'm going to start with what does ethics look like? Good Christian morality. What, What does it look like to be in a godly marriage? What does it look like uh, to live in a secular world? Just give me chapters 4, 5, and 6. If I start with just 4, 5, and 6 without paying attention to those first three chapters, the first side of the scale, it will result in legalism. It will result in me measuring myself by myself. And let me explain that. Because if I don't have the first three chapters, I can look at my life and I can look at relationships I have, and I can say, you know what? I'm a gentle person. I'm a patient person. I'm born with a lot of trouble. Like I give people the benefit of the doubt more often than not, and I've drawn the line. I'm done. I gave them their chance. It's over with. I've been patient enough. I've been kind enough. I've been forgiving enough. I don't have those first three chapters. I can do that. But if what I'm doing in chapter 4 is in response to the first three chapters, 
then I would say, well, the measurement is not myself, it's Christ. And I don't think I've been that patient. I don't think I've been that forbearing. I don't think I've been that forgiving either. So those first three chapters define what that worthiness, what that worthy walk looks like. It defines what humility looks like, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. It, it provides context for how I am to live my life as a Christian. By the same token, if I only prefer the doctrine of the first three chapters without chapters four, five, and six, the application, or the walk or the conduct, then what's going to happen is I've, I'm ascribing to a, a cheap grace. That God saves, it's all God, by God's grace, by God's power, by Christ, uh, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all taken care of. It doesn't make any difference how I live. I'm saved by grace after all. No, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are necessary too. That's part of the balance. That's part of the balance. You've got to have 4, 5, and 6. You can't only have the doctrine without living it out. It's required. It's part of the balance. So how and where do I start on this worthy walk? And the answer to that is in chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. So flip back in your Bible... Uh, maybe a page or so, to chapter 2. This was the one command given in the first three chapters. It reads like this. We've looked at it several times already. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If I'm remembering what I was saved out of, which is death and no hope, and no life, if I remember that, I won't find it hard to be patient and kind and bear with other people. Because I remember my roots. I remember what God has done to snatch me out of hellfire and bring me into the kingdom of the Son of His own love. If I remember that, walking in grace, walking in patience, walking in forbearance will not be a difficult thing. Now here is your first chance for comments or questions. Because we're going to build on this in just a moment. Terry. Does, can we see in this that as a believer, if the Holy Spirit is living in us as a believer, that as challenges come, we are able to see what our actions are and therefore perceive what our walk really looks like compared to what's written there? Uh, if, if I'm a Christian... 
Yes, God is going to reveal that through circumstances. He may reveal it through friendships. He may reveal it through the gathering of the church. That will, and it will always be a process. I will always be a work in process. I will never be until uh, Christ comes back in power and glory in the resurrection. Uh, I will not be finished until that point. And so there are always things. That, that goes back to the old illustration of Paul assesses his life three times in the letters he writes in the New Testament. The first time he assesses himself, he says, I'm the least of the apostles to the Corinthians. And then he assesses himself in a letter after that, and he says to the Ephesians, I'm the least of all saints. And then the last letter where he assesses himself is to Timothy towards the end of his life, and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. So you've got a man who was the least of the apostles... He progressed to the least of the saints. He progressed to the chief of sinners. And it doesn't mean that he was more sinful, more indulgent in his own selfishness than he was when he started. It's only that he became more aware of how necessary God's grace was in his life. If you think growing in Christ means you become less aware of how much you need God's grace, you're growing not like you think you are. Somebody else? Uh, Carrie and then Joash. Joash and then Carrie. Well, I mean, you could go back to listen to that message. The, the simple idea is that Christ brought peace between sinners and a holy God, and he brought peace between Jews and Gentiles who, for centuries of time, had lived uh, in hostility to one another. So... The big piece that Christ brought isn't the fact that he can bring Jews and Gentiles together. It's not the big fact that he can bring Republicans and Democrats together. It's not the big fact that he can bring conservatives and liberals together. The big piece is that he can bring sinners and make them at peace with God who, who is altogether and only holy. So our horizontal peace is established by the vertical peace that sinners have with God through Christ. Okay, let's keep going. Let's talk about this worthy balance in the book of Revelation. We've got two ideas. We're talking about a self-evident fundamental truth and a necessarily balanced relationship between two entities or two realities. Go to Revelation chapter 4. So I didn't put a page number on there because whatever Bible you're using, there's no book of the Bible after Revelation. So go to Revelation chapter 4, the very last book of the New Testament. And let's talk about what is in balance in Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to have David Suchet read this passage for you. It's going to be from the New International Version. And then I'm going to take over for David in chapter 5. So he'll do a better job reading than I do, but uh, I'll get him started. So follow in your Bible, Revelation chapter 4. The question will be, what is in balance in chapter 4? Revelation chapter 4 After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, 
a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. All right, so the question is, what is worthy? What is in balance in Revelation chapter 4? Now, we could pick out a lot of things, uh, but to keep it simple and to keep it on the screen, what's in balance, what's coming into play in Revelation chapter 4 is we've got the Lord God uh, who has created and sustains all things by His own will. The God who was and is and is to come, He's created everything and everything is sustained and exists because of who He is. On the other side of the balance is He's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. That's not hard to figure out. This is inevitable. This is a fundamental truth. This is self-evident. The one who created everything, it's self-evident that everything should worship this God. That's Revelation chapter 4. So in response to this, we're going to pause and sing a song, Thou Art Worthy. We'll sing through all of this two times. Thou Art Worthy. Let's everybody stand. So now let's take this and move into Revelation chapter 5. So still in Revelation, I'm going to start off with the first four verses of Revelation chapter 5. It reads, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So if I pause here and ask the question, what is in balance? What is this worthy in respect to? You've got on one side a scroll in God's hand with seven seals. 
And then on the other side, you've got a search for someone, for anyone, who is worthy to open the scroll. Is there anything that can bring equilibrium to this scale? You've got God with this scroll written front and back, seven seals. It needs unsealed if there's to be any hope of salvation, if there's to be any hope of justice, of righteousness, of peace. That, that scroll's got to be unsealed. And a search is done. And there's nothing to put on the other side of the, of the scale. No one is worthy. Which brings us to verses 5 to 10. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it, has been, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So now, what is, what is balancing on this scale? You've still got a scroll with seven seals in God, God's possession, but now you've got one who is worthy, one who is a lion from the tribe of Judah, a lamb looking as though it had been slain, who gives his life and ransoms to God a people for his own possession from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And he's worthy. It's balanced on the scale. Everything that God could ever demand of any sinner has been met by Christ. And so while there's no prophet, king, religious leader that has ever been born outside of Christ, he is the one who is worthy that can bring balance to the scale. Let's go to um, verses 11 to 14. Verse 11 reads, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let me just stop right there. So now, if we say, what is on the scale? What, is, what worthiness, what relationship are we talking about? We've got, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's worthy because of who He is what he's done. So on the other side, he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's a fundamental truth. What he accomplished by his perfect life of righteousness, by his perfect obedience, by living as a servant, by giving his life and dying a criminal's death, and then rising again on the third day, he's worthy to receive all of that. That's the only proper thing you can put on the other side of that scale. It's, a, it's blasphemy to refer to Christ as a great teacher, a moral leader, a perfect example. He's more than that. He's worth more than that. 
He's worth a lot more than that. And so all of heaven is celebrating who he is, and it's the right response. By the way, if you ever talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, stuff like Revelation 4 and 5, that's a great place to take them. Not John chapter 1, though John chapter 1 is a great place. It's just they're ready for you in John 1, and they'll argue till the cows come home. Revelation 4 and 5, not so much. Revelation 4, you've got God the Father being worshipped. All glory and honor and power. Now in Revelation 5, you've got the Son receiving all of that as well. We worship one God, a triune God in three persons. This is another great time to pause and do some singing. Turn in your hymnal to number 120. Now we'll move into one last set of verses that uses this word worthy, which I find so provocative and so full of meaning. We're going to look at the word worthy in Luke's gospel in two different places. So start with Luke's gospel, chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 863. 863 in a pew Bible. Luke chapter 7. And then we'll do Luke chapter 15, the word worthy. In Luke chapter 7, I'm going to start off by reading the first five verses. The first five verses read like this. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they, the elders of the Jews, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who has built us our synagogue. So the question, what is in balance when these Jewish elders come to Jesus on behalf of this Roman centurion? Well, the centurion wants Jesus to heal a high, highly valued, paralyzed, I think another gospel says, but a suffering servant. That's on one side. On the other side, you've got Jewish elders that offer, well, I know this is a big favor. I know we're asking for a lot of mercy here. But on the other hand, we're going to put on this side of the equation, he's worthy. Because after all, he, he built us a synagogue. He loves our nation. So that's what they want to put on the other side of the equation. For this big favor that they're asking for this man's beloved servant. Look at verses 6 to 10. And Jesus went with them. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What an interesting turn of events. The Jewish elders say, oh yeah, we've got some stuff to put on this side of the equation. This man, the centurion, finds out he still wants his servant, who's highly valued, to be healed. He still wants that. But he tells Jesus, oh, make no mistake. I've got nothing to put on the other side of the equation. There's, I've got nothing I can offer as worthy. 
I'm not, not only am I not worthy to have you grant this terrific favor of, of restoration, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. That's how unworthy I am. And he gets his request. Jesus grants the favor. It's entirely grace. It's entirely mercy. Because he has nothing to offer on the other side of the equation. How does that happen? And it's answered all over scripture, but I'll point you to two texts. We were in Isaiah a lot of 2021. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 reads, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. He, the Lord God chooses in his mercy to grant this man's request, not... He has nothing to offer on the other side of the equation, but God says, I dwell with the lowly and the contrite. And the centurion at least was that. He confessed his unworthiness. He confessed his lack. He confessed his deprivation, his bankruptcy. I've got nothing to give. And his servant is healed. What a terrific story. Also, Isaiah chapter 66 reads like this. Thus says the Lord... Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Remember what the Jewish elders said? He's built us a synagogue. The Lord says, I don't need a synagogue. I don't need a house. I don't need a temple. I don't need a tabernacle. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the centurion. And in, in God, in Christ, in his grace and his mercy, grants the request. And the servant is healed. The best story of all is the last one. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Page 874 in your Bible. Luke, chapter 15. This is the parable we've done in Good News Club the last two weeks. Well, actually, yeah, the last two weeks, the parable of the prodigal son, it starts off like this. Luke 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What a great story, right? So what's, what's being balanced in this, in this younger son's mind? Well, I'm surprised I don't have it on there. Uh, hmm, that's interesting. Okay, a previously advantaged son 
turned prodigal sinner wants only to survive as a hired servant. He was a son. He, he denounced his father. He received his, his inheritance, which essentially is telling my father, I wish you were dead because really all I care about is what I've got coming to me. He loses it all. He comes to himself and he says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I, I know I'm not worthy to be called a son. I'm asking to be treated as a hired servant. He intends to return to his father and confess he is not worthy to be the son. Now, verses 11 and 19, which you know. Uh, verse, that's not right. Oh, there we go. 20 to 24, that's what I want. 20 to 24, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a way off, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, true to his word, he said to his father, I've, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I can't put anything on that side of the scale. I'm no longer worthy. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's a story not unlike the centurion. Where this younger son says, I got nothing. I can't, I can't claim any merit to be called your son. To have any sort of a celebration. To be brought in as family. But that's exactly what the father does. He embraces him and kisses him and treats him as his dear son. By grace. And by mercy, not by merit, not by worth, not by works. Simply because God is gracious. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 explain exactly what happened here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That younger son who's Feasting on a fatted calf is there's a celebration and dancing and music. Nobody's saying, well, look what he did to deserve it. Look what he did to merit it. Look what he did to earn it. He's got nothing. It's a celebration of grace. It doesn't mean he's not going to be called to live a certain way as a son moving forward. But his sonship is not because of what he's done. It's because of what God has done. Ephesians chapter 4 is not a demonstration of what we can do. It's a demonstration of what God has already done by His grace. And now we live it out. What are your comments and questions for the last time? Yes? Yeah. What he, he will live a different way. His attitude, His motivations, His affections, that's all changed. But now the prize is the relationship He has with His Father. And not what can He get out of His Father. A lot of people worship in a church to get some gift from God. And what is really not being celebrated is just the fact that there's a, we can have a relationship with the living God through grace in Christ. The real thing to celebrate is that we can have a relationship with God who made us in spite of who we are left to ourselves by grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works follow. You do live a different way. But it's because of what God has already done. Uh, Rick. And those, cre- those beings in heaven are celebrating not only who he is, but they are celebrating his works. You have redeemed the people for yourself. They're not celebrating our works. They're celebrating his works. The only works that are going to be celebrated in heaven are the works of the Lamb. Yeah. Somebody else? Cindy. Yeah. This story is really about the Father. Uh, over the top. Immeasurable. How deep and wide and, you know, all those dimensions is the love of God in Christ Jesus. It, it exceeds anybody's expectation or imagination what God did in his son to, to make us, that we are adopted sons and daughters into God's family. And that's the, the celebration of our, the last song we'll sing, which is, My God, My Savior, My God, which was originally titled, I Am Not Skilled to Understand, by Dora Greenwell in 1873. Now, Darwin's not here to lead us, and I'm no song leader. Uh, we'll do the best we can. Let's everybody stand. This is the prodigal son's song. <laughs> <laughs>